listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, that's where we've been for a while and uh, where we're going to be for a little while. And we're just taking it verse by verse, passage by passage, nothing fancy, just digging into this sermon and applying it to our lives. And uh, the title of the, the message uh, this weekend is Putting Off Anger. That'll be the topic that our passage deals with. I like preaching through books of the Bible or passages of the Bible as often as I can because it forces me to deal with some things that it may not necessarily occur to me to preach on. But the things that Jesus preached in the sermon, I'm forced to preach here. So, um, and I love the fact that so many of our classes are discussing the Sermon on the Mount as we're going through it. So we're going to look in just a moment at these two verses in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 22. I got, I got to give you a little bit of a warning here at the beginning. This message comes with a warning. And that is for the first eight or nine minutes of the sermon, I really need you to focus with me because I'm going to be throwing a lot at you in the first few minutes. And I'm going to give you like two different asides that have nothing to do with the text, but I think I, think I have to give you these asides because they're important. So just hang in there with me for the first eight or nine minutes. I'll throw a lot at you, but after that, we'll coast right on into the topic, okay? Um, but it's going to get a little bumpy, a little bit of turbulence here at the beginning. Let's look at the text, and then we will uh, jump right in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council, the heavenly council. And if you say, You fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. All right. So Jesus tells them, you've heard it said in your tradition, in your scriptures, do not murder. And if you murder, you're going to be liable to judgment. That's what you've heard, he says. And that's true. Absolutely. But what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is that all of that just has to do with external behavior. And it leads people to think that, okay, if I can just abstain from this external act, then I can check off that box and, and I'm righteous. And, and that's not really how it works in the kingdom. Jesus says, even if you haven't engaged in the external act, if you harbor in the core of your being, in, in your heart, if you harbor anger and bitterness towards a person, or if you, um, if you harbor a disposition of insult towards a person and disregard to them, if that's the way you orient to a fellow human being, he says, even then you're going to be liable to the judgment. And at the end, he actually ups the ante. And he says, you're in danger of the, the hell of fire. Now, here's my first little aside. The Greek term behind hell of fire is the Greek word Gehenna. Everybody say Gehenna. Try to remember this word. It's very important to us in the New Testament. Most of the time when you see in your English translation the word hell in the New Testament, most of the time it's translating the Greek word Gehenna. 
What is Gehenna? Where do we get that word? Gehenna was an actual place. It was a literal place. It was a valley on the southern end of old Jerusalem. In Hebrew, it was called the Valley of Hinnom, but the Greek word is Gehenna. I want to show you a picture of Gehenna today on the screen. There we go. So this is Gehenna. Um, when When you look at Gehenna today, it's just like a little piece of Gehenna. It just keeps going in both directions. It's actually today a beautiful place. It's a beautiful park. I've been there several times. Um, Kids play soccer in this park. Uh, People have birthday parties. People get married. They have weddings in this park. For those of you going with us to Israel uh, next year, you'll have a chance to go to Gehenna. You can come back and tell people, I've been in hell, right? (laughs) But this is Gehenna today. Now, in biblical times, this is not, Gehenna was a much, much worse place. Uh, This is where, for example, ancient Canaanites would sacrifice infants to the pagan god Molech. Lots of pagan demonic stuff took place in this valley. Uh, By the days of Jesus, we have evidence that Gehenna, the Valley of Hanom, was used as the city dump. This is where they would throw all of their refuse, all of their garbage, and, and just like any garbage dump, you know, there were fires constantly burning the garbage in the dump. So there was always smoke billowing out. It was the place where the fire never dies and the worm never dies. It was a nasty place filled with very odious smells and horrific sights. And it's just a place you don't want to be. They would actually take the bodies of executed criminals and toss them into this valley. Okay? So it's a nasty place. By the times of Jesus, Gehenna became a metaphor that rabbis would often use, anybody would actually use uh, in their teachings. We see Jesus doing this in the New Testament. It wasn't unique to him. Lots of people did it. But Jesus would warn, he would say, listen, if you don't change, if you don't repent, if you don't turn around, this is where you're going to end up. You're going to end up in Gehenna, right? It was sort of a metaphor. It's like in our language today, when we say things like, man, you're flushing your life down the toilet, or your life's going down the tubes, or you're taking your life and throwing it in the garbage, right? It's no different than, than the rabbis saying, you're on your way to Gehenna. If you don't turn around, this is where you're going to go. And so I actually think whenever we see the, the word Gehenna in the scriptures, it'd be best if the translators just left it as is, left it untranslated, because when it gets translated hell, we, we have all kinds of associations with that that I don't think are in the, t- in the actual term that Jesus used, Um, It's Gehenna. It was a metaphor. Now, scholars and preachers debate about, well, how far do we push that metaphor? How literal we should take it? That's beyond the scope of this sermon. But the point Jesus is making, and this is where we needed to get, but I felt like I needed to say all of that. The point Jesus is making, he's saying, listen, there are consequences to your choices. There are consequences to the decisions uh, that we make. We all understand that when it comes to murder, but he's saying even when you harbor an angry, insulting orientation towards a fellow human being, he says you're liable to judgment. Now that's, here's the next little aside I have to give you. The main Hebraic concept of judgment that is not a judgment that's imposed from the outside in, even though sometimes ancient people would talk like that. The main kind of judgment that the Bible talks about, and this is certainly true of the teachings of Jesus, is that it was an organic 
judgment in which the consequences of sin are built into the sin itself. Let me give you an illustration that'll help you. Let's say that today you make a decision that, you know what, I'm going to start taking and using crystal meth. Every day of my life from now on, I'm going to start using crystal meth. All right? Uh, I hope that doesn't get cut in the video and used out of context. Um, Well, there's some consequences that you need to be warned about. If you start going down that direction, it's going to tear apart your social life. You're not going to be able to hold a job. Your life's going to become totally disorganized. It's going to have consequences for your health. Your teeth are going to fall out. Your your cheeks are going to get sunken in. Your your, your skin's going to become discolored and have scars. Your hair's going to be disheveled. It's going to absolutely ruin your life. But it's not that God has to stand from afar and say, oh, you've decided to take crystal meth? Well, let me strike you with this judgment and make your teeth fall out. No, the consequences for that choice are built into, it's organic to the nature of the choice itself, you understand. This is how God has hardwired creation. It's the law of sowing and reaping. It's the law of cause and effect. But it's organic, And the sin ricochets back on the person, you see. We see this principle a bit later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, first couple verses. Jesus says, do not judge so that you may not be judged. Watch this. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. You reap what you sow. But he's not here saying that God's going to impose a judgment on you that is going to parrot the judgment you gave. No, Jesus is just simply giving common Hebraic wisdom. He's saying this is how it works. This is the way the world is, the moral arc of creation. It works in such a way that if you're a person who gives judgment, it's going to come back upon you. And the measure you give tends to be the measure you get back. It's going to ricochet back upon you. So if we don't want to get judged at the end, well, the only way to avoid that is to not be the kind of person who always giving judgment. Amen. Well, when you murder someone, you're judging the person. You're saying this person is not worth living, right? You're, you're assigning a value to that person that's less than the value God gives us. Because on the cross, God says every person has immeasurable value, unsurpassable worth. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to reflect that to every person we meet in in everything we say, do, or think towards them. No ifs, ands, buts about it, amen? All right. Well, when you murder someone, you're disagreeing with God. You're saying not only does this person not have unsurpassable worth, they're not even worth living. So you murder them. And Jesus says, one way or another, that's going to come back to you. And that's a very true statement. But then he applies the same logic to harboring anger and an insulting disposition towards someone. Even in the core of your being, when you harbor that kind of angry, insulting orientation towards a fellow human being, you're violating their worth. We'll see this in a few weeks when Jesus deals with the issue of lust and adultery. We all understand that the social consequences or implications of committing the act of adultery are much worse than just simply thinking about it. 
But from God's perspective, committing the act of adultery is simply the manifestation of what you've already been thinking. The root of it, the root of sin, is what comes between the ears and what happens in the core of our being. And that's why what Jesus is interested in, and you see it over and over in especially chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, is he's like, I'm not just here to deal with the surface. I'm not just here to clean up the external. What I want to do is change your heart so completely that sooner or later that heart change will work its way out into the extremities of your life, and then everything you do follows suit and will change. But we got to start with the root, which is in the heart. Amen. How many of you with me so far? All right. And there's, a very, there's an urgency here to his words. So that brings us now to our topic for, for this evening, and that is this issue of anger. You know, he says, whenever you're angry with a brother or sister, and I think it's interesting, he, he just... He doesn't qualify it. He just says, he, he doesn't say like, like whenever you're angry for an unjust reason. He just says whenever you're angry. And that brings up a million dollar question. What should be, if we're followers of Jesus, if we're apprentices of Jesus, what should be our relationship with anger? I want to give you some thoughts to chew on. We're going to be looking at a number of scriptures. Uh, so, so let's look at uh, one of the most important ones, one of the most famous ones when it comes to this topic. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 26, I think this is a very insightful scripture here. Uh, Paul writes this, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Let's keep that up there for a moment. So, so first of all, just in that first phrase, be angry, but do not sin, I, I think it's crystal clear Paul makes a distinction here, that it is indeed possible to experience anger, and yet, and yet not sin. Those two things are not necessarily inextricably tied. We can have anger and experience anger and refrain from uh, uh, approaching it in the wrong way. But, but I want to draw your attention to the Greek term there in that first occurrence of the word angry. Be angry. It's the Greek term orge, and it just means you get hot. You get hot. You know, something, something that you value gets devalued. It gets treated in a way that does not reflect its proper value in your eyes. And when that happens, you cannot help it. You're going to experience anger. That's, that's called being a human being. That's called being alive, right? When something you value gets devalued, you're going to get hot. You're going to have that, that level of anger, orge. But then he says, watch this, do not let the sun go down on your Anger. English, it's the same word, but underneath it in the Greek, notice something changes here. It's the same root, but there's a prefix that's added. Para-orge, which means something like submerged heat. Or it can be translated bitterness, because now it's become a part of you. It becomes a pollutant in your life. So anger has an appropriate role to play, but it's always in the short term. You get hot. Something that you value gets devalued. You're going to get angry. But now the question is, what do, what do we do with it now? What do I now do with it? Do I partner with this emotion and allow anger uh, to, to be nurtured and accommodated in my life and fed so that it actually becomes the fuel for my life? Or do I learn somehow to set anger aside and allow something else to fuel me in the kingdom? 
Just a few verses later, verses 30 through 32, another very important passage. A couple things I want to show you here. Um, Paul writes this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So if you're interested in walking the Jesus way, We've got to put some of these things away. He, he mentions malice, slander, and he also mentions anger. And again, notice he doesn't qualify it. He just simply states it. We've got to put away anger. In fact, here's what's interesting to me. I want to draw your attention to this. Every time in the New Testament, whenever there's a list of things that are given that you and I should be purging from our lives, did you know that anger is always on that list? Every single time. I'll show you another example. Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Anything like that, get rid of it. It's not doing any good. It's not appropriate for the kingdom person. And it's never qualified. So on every list in the New Testament of things that we're supposed to be shedding from our lives, anger is always on that list. The opposite is also true. In every list in the New Testament, when we're given a list of things that we should be cultivating in our lives, righteous indignation is never on that list. In fact, the things that are on those lists are things that sound like the opposite of anger. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These things are the opposite of anger. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about how love is patient. Love is persistent. Love is long-suffering. These are the opposite of anger. One more passage, very important. In James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, James says, you must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Okay, so anger's going to happen. That's just a natural thing. When things you value get devalued, you're going to get angry. James is saying, but I want you to cultivate the kind of character that is not easily triggered, that's not easily angered. Don't be one of these trigger-happy people who, who constantly maintains and nurtures their anger. James says, I want you to cultivate a different way of living in the world, a different way of just being with people. And he's, this is part of what it means to live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. But he gives us a reason. Look at verse 20. He gives us a reason. He says, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Now, this is not what a lot of people think. I think sometimes we feel like we feel actually quite righteous 
for our ability to maintain a constant sense of righteous indignation against these people or those groups or this person. We, we feel righteous for, for maintaining a constant sense of anger. And James says, anger does not produce God's righteousness. We think it does, but it doesn't. And this is where I think so many Christians are deceived today. I'm just going to say it like I mean it. So much of what happens in churches and in communities of faith, Christians, so much of what happens actually catalyzes anger. Preachers just preaching angry all the time, red in the face, raising their voice, yelling at this group, these sinners over here, this politician here, or these churches or these pastors who aren't preaching the truth, and, and they're just constantly spewing out angry rhetoric. And it just, you look at that and you're like, man, if, if we're apprentices of Christ, are we supposed to be that angry all the time? What about our politics? I'll go there. We get so drunk with righteous indignation in our politics. No matter what a person's political persuasion, people tend to just feel more righteous than everybody else. And, and some of the terms and the language we use, the hatred, the anger, the, the insults, you traitor, you hypocrite, you fool, you idiot. And it's so thick and prevalent in our culture, and I think it's time, I can't, do every, I can't do anything about everybody else, but I can speak to the people in this room, and I think it's time we immerse ourselves again in the New Testament, and we, we observe the reality that actually, every time we're given a list of things we need to be purging from our lives, anger is always on that list. And we ought to be doing that just as intensely as if it was murder because it's violating the worth of human beings. We ought to be just as intensely against the judgments in our own minds as we are against murder. Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, don't murder. Great, don't do that. I'm not for that, I'm against it. But let's get real about what's happening in your inner world. In the midst of a culture where hostility is normal, unresolved anger keeps us from walking down the kingdom road of Christ-likeness. Okay, let me answer now a couple whatabouts, and then we'll close. There's a couple, well, what about this question? A couple questions like that I want to deal with, and, and then we're going to close and, and pray. What about Jesus cleansing the temple? <laughs> That's always used as an example when people want to justify uh, their constant rage, when they want to justify their violence even, they will often point to the incident of Jesus cleansing the temple. It's in all four Gospels. We read when Jesus uh, enters Jerusalem during his final week, you know, he, he enters into the temple courts and um, it, it says that he, he flips over the money-changing tables and then he, John tells us he braids a whip and he dries out the animals. He basically shuts down the temple for a short period of time. I'm sure they got it back up and running very quickly, but, but that wasn't necessarily the point. I'll, I'll share that in a moment. But what about that? It sure seems like Jesus is uh, flying off the handle here, you know, definitely angry. Um, people want to point to that all of the time. What about flipping tables? Jesus flipped tables. Where's some tables I could flip? A um, couple things, a couple things. 
First of all, whatever else we think about this incident, this is not the case of Jesus just throwing a spontaneous temper tantrum and, and walking into the temple and just blowing his lid. That's not what we have here. Uh, first of all, he, he braids a whip, which shows intentionality. It takes time to braid a whip. And Jesus is not using a whip on human beings. Why does he braid the whip? Because there's herds of animals. And if you want to move animals from one place to the next, you crack a whip. And so he uses the whip. He cracks it in order to, to, to drive these animals out of the temple courts because he's wanting to shut down the function of the temple. It doesn't necessarily say that he was angry. It certainly doesn't say he was violent. But let's say that he was angry. You know, it's possible. You know, I, I definitely wouldn't just categorically rule that out. Maybe, maybe there is some righteous indignation going on here. And that leads me to the second thing. What's happening primarily in this story is Jesus is engaging in what was called prophetic theater. In fact, he's been doing that ever since he makes it into Jerusalem. When he rides the donkey down the Mount of Olives, you know, he's, it's prophetic theater. He's enacting, he's acting out a prophecy from Zechariah. Zechariah 9, a few hundred years before. So much of what he does in that final week is prophetic theater, but that's what he's doing here in the temple. It was very common for the Hebrew prophets to do this. They, they often wouldn't just prophesy. They would actually live out and act out their prophecies. And there was a prophecy in the scriptures that there's coming a day when God himself, Yahweh himself, is going to enter into the temple and judge his people, and even the temple is going to be destroyed. And so what Jesus is doing is he's enacting or acting out that prophecy, and he's actually, and this, this would blow people's minds in that, in that world, he's actually putting himself in the position of Yahweh. By judging the temple, he's putting himself in a superior position to the temple and its leadership, and that's ultimately what seals his fate. That's, in, that's ultimately what's going to get him crucified. But the point that I'm making is when we see this story happening, this is not a case of Jesus just blowing his top. This is a careful, deliberate, prayerful, um, calculated act where he's acting out prophecy. He is, is he's engaging in prophetic theater. But finally, what about this? You know, we find Jesus, we do find Jesus having conversations with religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees. And sometimes, man, he's using some pretty harsh language. He's using pretty strong terms. You know, he calls them vipers, snakes, basically. He's calling them hypocrites several times, actually. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them uh, whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. Uh, these, are, these are fighting words, right? That's pretty strong language. And, and when you read the scriptures, you know, we don't get tone or anything like that. And so we use our imagination when we read. And, and certainly when you read some of those conversations, it can definitely give you the impression that Jesus is like flying off the handle. Like you hypocrites, you snakes, I can't wait for you to get what's coming to you, right? And that's why I think it's so important that we learn to read the Bible through the lens of Calvary, through the lens of the cross. I said this a few weeks ago and I want it to stick with you. Jesus hanging on the cross is the quintessential revelation of what God is like because it's the perfect expression of self-giving love. 
And love is God's very essence. John tells us twice in 1 John chapter 4. God is love and nowhere do we see that revealed more purely than on the cross. And so if we want to know what God is like, we start there and then we look at and read everything else through that lens. So we've got to learn how to read scripture through the lens of the cross. And when you do that, it totally changes the way you read these conversations. When he's using these strong terms, we, we have to remember within a, just a few days, he's gonna spread out, spread out his arms on the cross and die for these same men who are gonna be partly responsible for his death. So yes, Jesus is using strong language, but I think, I think we gotta remember that he's using strong, ter- strong terms because he loves these folks. And they're in a desperate position. They're blinded by self-righteous pride. When you start thinking that you're more righteous than everybody else, you're in a bad spot. You're in a bad place in your life. You know, of course, when he deals with other sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, you know, you, you can see this incredible grace and love and respect and this tenderness with which he deals with these people. But when it comes to the some of these religious leaders, he's using pretty strong language. And I think it's because he's trying to shock some sense into them. You know, they're not going to receive the tenderhearted approach. These guys are not going to, they're going to interpret that as liberalism. Oh, this guy's just a friend of sinners. He's a drunkard. He's a glutton. He's just lackadaisical. He's all, you know, uh, he errs on the side of grace. That's who he is. They're not going to receive that approach. The only thing that can hopefully jar them out of their Blindness is very strong language, but, but I don't think we need to see Jesus as full of uncontrollable rage. Rather, I think this is desperate love calling on the beloved to wake up. Village Church, listen, everything we do, love needs to be the fuel of our work in the world. There very well may be things that happen sometimes around us and in our culture that anger us. There, there are going to be times you and I cannot help it, whether it's someone in our life or whether it's a politician somewhere or something that happens in the world. There are going to be times when, when something happens that causes us anger, and that's part of being a human being. But anger should never be our constant. Think of it like this. Think of it like a warning light on the dashboard of your car. That's what anger is. When you experience anger, it's actually, it can be helpful. It's just alerting you that there's something off. There's something wrong. There's something that's not right, and it needs to be addressed. And so the warning light comes on, and you do something about it. That's what anger's meant to be. It's a, it's a short-term warning light. Something's off. But when you have a vehicle that's got a warning light that won't go off, and it's just constant, Number one, if that warning light just stays on, it's going to ultimately not even serve much of a purpose at all. But secondly, it's going to ultimately ruin your vehicle. It could potentially destroy your vehicle. I think the same thing is true with our soul. Anger is, is, a, is a very important emotion at, and very appropriate at certain times, but it should never be our constant because if anger remains a constant thing that we nurture in our soul, it actually pollutes our soul with poison, with venom, with, with bitterness, and we may become people who still bear the name of Christian, and yet we have veered off of the Jesus way that he blazed for us. Think about this. When Jesus is on the cross praying over his executioners, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. It is impossible to pray a prayer like that out of a soul that has been poisoned with anger and bitterness. And I promise you, whatever we think we can accomplish through anger, we can accomplish much more effectively through love. And this was Martin Luther King's philosophy in a nutshell. One One of the remarkable things, I know he was a flawed man like everybody's flawed, but one of the things that Martin Luther King really got right is before they would ever go march, the night before, they would have a night of just purging. And he would teach them and tell them, don't, when you go out and march, don't just go out and march for your freedom. March for the freedom of your oppressors. Don't go out and march with darkness in your heart because darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can drive out darkness. And boy, how we need that message and that voice today. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.